You are listening to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kelly Kasperson. Hey, friends. I am super excited to have Cara Lowenthal on today, and I hope she's my friend now. So thank you for coming on my podcast. <laughs> You're welcome. Absolutely. We and went so- to the same life coach school, which kind of count for something. We're next to each other on the charts. I mean... We're next to each other on the podcast charts in Apple Health and Fitness today, you guys. So it's meant to be. (laughs) (laughs) And you did the uh, make your parents happy by being a lawyer. I did the make my parents happy by being a doctor route. Uh So Uh same, same, same. Well-traveled path. Well-traveled. All right. So you're a master certified coach, host of the top-rated podcast, Unfuck Your Brain, which I've been listening to for years. It's amazing. And creator of The Clutch, A Feminist Mindset Revolution, a graduate of Yale College and Harvard Law School. You're now a life coach podcaster, which is what I am. (laughs) (laughs) The best career there is. It's the best career ever. One thing I really love about how you present thought work. And we can define what that is for the people who don't know. But it's like you unabashedly call out the bullshit that is like literally wrecking our lives for no good reason, except for we just haven't thought to challenge it. Can you kind of start of like, how did you get here? How is this your, how is this your thing? (laughs) How is this what I do? Yes. I mean, as you said, I am, uh, I was a lawyer. I was a reproductive rights litigator and academic, but I was always not like a seeker because that makes it sound like you're going to like meditation retreats and doing ayahuasca, which is not my vibe really. But I was just always very interested in kind of self-development and how do we decide who to be? How do we become the people we want to be? Like whatever you call that, which I think in men is called like philosophy and in women is called (laughs) self-help, which is why I think that feminist self-help is practical philosophy. So I was always interested in that stuff. And I almost, you know, I almost majored in psychology before I ended up going more on this other track. And so in part of my as part of my own journey of like trying to figure out my own brain and what the hell is going on up there i found coaching as taught by the founder of the score we both got certified Brooke Castillo and it was like somebody had like the angels sung and unveiled the secret to life and i was just i was like what the fuck what like did everybody know and nobody told me this like what are you talking about my thoughts, like create my feelings and I can change my thoughts. I was, I was just mind blown. And then I started applying it in my own life. It was so powerful. And I realized that I actually started out kind of focusing on coaching lawyers before I brought in. But even there, I think I saw the ways in which um, how coaching was being taught was at this very like general level as if everybody's brains were the same. And first with lawyers and then more generally with women, I sort of it was very clear to me that like the experiences you go through and the identities you hold or the education you have or whatever shape the way that you think. So that was true of lawyers. I started out really focusing on like, well, how do they teach you how to think in law school? It's like a very specific way of thinking that fucks you up. And then when I brought in to kind of sort of high anxiety, high achieving women in general, it really allowed me to connect like that history of feminist work I had, feminist theory and feminist activism to this coaching career and see that there are, you know, ways that women are taught to think about themselves that are 
hugely impactful on their thought patterns. So to me, it's sort of like it was like a stool that was missing a leg. We had like the traditional talk therapy focus on like your childhood, your family of origin, how your the way you're raised impacts your brain, which is very important. We had the coaching focus on like cognitive psychology and evolutionary biology of sort of how does that impact your brain and how you think. But the third leg was missing, which is society and your identity and how society, the messages that society has about who you are as a person and how those impact your brain. So that's how I got here. And that's what I do now. I want your definition of feminism. And I I wouldn't have even thought to ask this, except for I was at a retreat like two weeks ago, was talking to a guy, cool dude. And he's like, yeah, but the feminist, blah, blah, blah. He's kind of railing. And I'm like, hold on, we got to back up because I think our definitions are different. And so to me, I'm like, ah, I think for, you know, the people in the back of the room, we should define what feminism means to you. A hundred percent. So I have a book coming out called Take Back Your Brain. And in the book, I say that there's basically three options. You can be a feminist, which means that you think that people of all genders are equally capable and should have equal opportunities. You can be a misogynist, which means you think men are better than women, are sort of more anything naturally and entitled to more privileges than women. Or you can be a misandrist, which means that you think women are better and women are entitled to more, should be entitled to more opportunities. So there's only only three options. Like I really, to me, one of the things I talk about in the book is the difference between feminism as a philosophy and feminism as a specific modern political movement, right? So I think feminism as a philosophy is the belief that people of any gender, since men and women aren't the only two genders, but that's what sexist society tells us, but people of any gender should have equal rights and opportunities and are sort of equally valuable and worthy as just human subjects on their own terms. That's the what I'm talking about with feminism. Now, I personally happen to also be a feminist in many of the like modern American political movement senses, but you don't have to be to be on board with that sentiment. And obviously, lots of people are not don't identify with the term feminist or don't identify with the American feminist movement for a variety of reasons, both from the left and the right. So it's really not about kind of like, did you agree with everything? I don't know, Gloria Steinem said. It's it's like, what are your beliefs about kind of how gender impact what people are allowed to be and do in the world? Yeah. One of the big insights that I had with coaching, I think I, I was getting coached on if I was a good enough mom. Because that was like a, that was a running theme for a while that it took a while, but was great. Coaching changed my life. And the realization of like, I didn't put the thought I'm not a good mom in my head. Like, I don't actually believe that about myself. I believe I'm a good mom. And this thought can come to us from society telling us, are you sure you're a good mom? Check yourself. Are you sure? Are you good enough yet? <laughs> you're probably not. You're probably what a bad about mom, yeah. during the holidays, right? Like kind of like the idea that thoughts can be put on you by society. And and that's kind of where you're coming from, from the lens of being like, there's a lot of stuff that makes us behave the way we're behaving that kind of got put on us. And once we can separate the us from the put on us, we can see our power. Am I describing that appropriately? Yeah, I think it's really insidious because it feels like if somebody just like applicated it to your forehead, you would know it wasn't yours, right? But instead what happens is we absorb it unconsciously, especially when we're young. And then when we think the thoughts, it comes out in our internal voice, right? So if every thought you got from society, 
you heard in your head with like a male announcer being like, look at that. Your children are upset. You must be a bad mother. Like you would be able to identify that as, oh, that's not mine. That's a social message I absorbed. But it all goes into the hopper. Like your brain is forming when you're, especially when you're young, forming all these neural connections and learning all of its beliefs about the world. Like what things do we eat or not? When do we have to wear pants? Where am I supposed to go to the bathroom? Like you're learning everything and you're picking up all of these social norms that are from society, they're from your family, they're from your religion, they're what happened at school, what do you get taught at daycare? Like you're just, you're a sponge, you're absorbing all of that. And so it becomes very, it's a lot of women, I think people socialize as women experience what I call the brain gap. And I talk about this a lot in the book, which is like the gap between what you want to think and believe and feel and how you actually do. And especially among women who might identify as being like, more educated or more empowered or more progressive or feminist or whatever, there's this like, well, I don't think it should matter whether I'm married or have a partner. Like, there's nothing wrong with being single, but I feel really embarrassed every time I go to my family holiday and all my cousins are engaged and I feel like there's something wrong with me. It's like that gap comes from not realizing that all this socialization is in your brain and just feeling like, why do I have such this split brain where I like want to believe this thing, but I just feel totally differently. This amazing podcast could not happen without the support of our sponsors. One sponsor I'm so excited about is Uberlube. I've been using Uberlube and recommending them for years. I give away lube packets in my clinic. Adding lube with intimacy is a no-brainer. And a good silicone lube shows that when you play, you mean business. Uberlube is long-lasting, super slippery, and doesn't have any of that sticky tackiness of the water-based lubes. I find it's great for dry skin, especially skin affected by hormone changes. It's so clean and useful that people use it for their hair and to prevent chafing with sporting activities, too. Next time you reach for the lube, reach for Uber Lube. Check out the link in the bio with 10% off. Enter the code NOTBROKEN at uberlube.com. I kind of think, like, you were, like, the first alien <laughs> that I saw of who, like, can <laughs> actually, like, like, you're up here looking at society and how women are being so, and you're like, hey, you guys look down, like, like you're able to separate, like, you're like, if an alien came to the planet and was like, why are these people told these things and told consciously or subconsciously, right? Like told implicitly or explicitly, I guess. Ability to kind of pull that apart and look at it is immensely powerful. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, I've like done it. I had to like put it together piece by piece along the way, which is why I'm so excited about the book because it's like now it's all laid out in one place, right? Like I had to kind of figure out as I went along, like, and I saw this with my clients and myself, there were certain thought patterns that were just very resistant to change. And like, they were, were very hard to shift. And I, you know, there's not one answer for all of those, but I do think a lot of them were because women didn't understand that they were thinking these thoughts because they'd been socialized to think them. And so the sort of tenacity and strength of the thoughts just seemed like it like must be true because it's like not going away. And I think it all the time and it's, I've been thinking it forever. And I think this explanation of like, of course it's so tenacious and of course it feels so dangerous. I mean, I think this is also an area that the socialization context is so important is if you think about the history of women and, you know, specifically like Western society I'm talking about here, because that's my area of expertise until 
50 years ago, essentially, you needed to be married to survive. I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. It wasn't until 1974 that women could have a bank account and a credit card just in their names in every state in the country, right? Before that, you literally had to find some man you were related to, take them down to the bank and have them co-sign the credit card to be like, well, when this little lady gets into financial trouble, I will bail her out. So if you just think about like the the sort of social, the social punishment and shunning and the literal material difficulty that it was to be a woman if you weren't accepted, you were rejected by society, you didn't want to marry some dude that you didn't like and keep his house and have his babies. Like that was physically dangerous. And so there's generations and generations of women who have been taught this. And okay, now it's not physically dangerous, but we have, you know, thousands of years of socialization. And I think that it goes a long way towards explaining why you have this split brain experience where you can like intellectually understand that like you can't control how someone else thinks about you. And like your boss being mad at you is not actually fatal, but you feel your nervous system and your emotions feel like you're about to die. Yes, there's an evolutionary biology element to that, but there's also a reason that women are so highly anxious and much more people-pleasing in all of it, and that's the socialization. So I think it just helps you see that phenomenon in a different way and understand like, oh, there's really nothing wrong with me. This was, you know, to reject a man can still be physically dangerous and used to be very much so. So of course I'm going to have a ton of anxiety around it, my brain has not caught up to the very relatively historically recent changes in women's power and autonomy. I love that. I cannot use the, the book's coming out May 2024, right? Yes, but you should go pre-order the book now. Pre-order it now, people. Pre-order bonuses that all go away as soon as it comes out. And if you're listening to this on or before January 15th, where when you pre-order, you get the um, introduction and first chapter will be emailed to you on January 15th or after. So you can dive in sooner. Sweet. Get very excited. Yeah, we'll put it out for you. Yeah, takebackyourbrainbook.com. Dude, yes. So I got into life coaching because of sex. That's my story. We're, this is going to lead to us talking about desire. So I'm a urologist. I can make your pelvis look real good. I can give you the hormones. I can make the muscles not tight. Like I can make the pelvis work. And then your sex is still bad. And I'm like, because your biggest sex organ is your brain. And I'm like, do you know that desire, and, and desire is complicated. There's hormone stuff. Don't get me wrong. There is biology, but human sexuality is biopsychosocial and you can create desire. I think more frequently we can kill desire by our thoughts and those thoughts being judgment or time scarcity or body image or all the things. But let's talk about desire or sex, pick your favorite avenue of this topic. I mean, I definitely, when I first started training to be a coach, everybody in my coaching certification was like, you need to be a sex coach. So this is this thing. I discovered this when I was researching and writing the book. And I mean, I knew it was a phenomenon I'd been coaching on for years, but I discovered it had a name and had been studied, which is object of affirmation desire. So object of affirmation desire is the like scientific name for the phenomenon in which women are socialized to see themselves as objects of desire and to believe that what is arousing is to be desired, right? So as opposed to men are socialized to be like, I see a thing, desire comes up in me because I desire the thing. I am the agent doing the desiring and that is sexy for me. I am experiencing arousal based on the thing I am desiring or the person, ideally. <laughs> women are socialized to think that someone else has to desire them for them to feel quote unquote sexy, which also 
that is a word that covers a real range of thoughts, feelings, and physical sensations, right? It like when people say feel sexy, they mean everything from I'm physically aroused and close to orgasm to I have the thought. I look good today or I'm desirable. It's like a whole range of things. And so I think that this is like, I mean, so many things screw up women's relationship to sex, but seeing ourselves as the object and being objectified in that way, it really like, it's not just the problem of body image and physical objectification. It's also this alienation from our own sexuality and experience of experiencing sort of sensuality, sexuality, desire in ourselves, right? Right. We're told that like, Somebody, usually a man, has to deliver that to us. And that's so disempowering. And then, of course, if your partner is not acting like, you know, the man in the rom-com or like he like they did when you first met, then you are don't feel sexy. And then your sex life, of course, tanks. Yep. And if you and I mean, there's so many different avenues, but it's like you can create your desire. And people are like, you can look at your partner and think that their butt looks good in that pants on purpose, right? Like you can create the desire in your life. At the same time, you can be like, dude, he always leaves the dishes out and he's always late and he's always da-da-da. And it's like, you kill your desire for that person when you're always thinking those thoughts. And it's like, we don't think we have power over how we think about people and we do. And also what we think impacts desire. I don't think there are many men based on their socialization who would say to you, well, I was desiring my wife, but she left her dishes out. So I don't want to sex anymore. <laughs> right? Like that's not, they don't think of that as something that would impact their desire. Whereas women think of all those things as somehow impacting their desire. And I think that that's partly because of the way women are socialized to see sex as this sort of transactional favor that you do, right? I mean, I think both genders get the socialization that that sex is this like thing women give to men or this favor that women do for men. And also women are socialized. I mean, first of all, you know, the words we use for women who like sex, like don't be those people, right? So like there's that, that huge obvious problem. And then number two, that sex is really kind of extra. Shouldn't you care more about kids and your job looking presentable? And like sex is extra, Right. And so people like the modern woman is strapped for she's so overextended. Her cortisol through the roof. And then she's like, I don't do it. And it's like, dude, you haven't made any time for this. You haven't prioritized it. Right. Because it's like it really is this extra bonus for us. It's not like inherently yours. That's always there. Right. And women are so alienated from their own. I mean, women have such a complicated relationship with pleasure in general because we're socialized to believe that we need to like deserve pleasure or that pleasure is something you need to have like finished all your work, right? There's like all this capitalism socialization and productivity socialization, gender socialization, right? The like association between women and pleasure being like sinful. There's just so many levels and layers of socialization that separate women from just your physical ability to feel good, right? We moralize it so much. Like you would never say, I don't know, like I'm not in the mood to digest my food or like purify my blood. You know, it's just like, these are just like organs in your body that just do their thing. And sexual pleasure is obviously more complex than that, but there is a level on which for most people, feeling sensual pleasure in your body is just a thing your body can do that is a natural physical reaction, just like you have taste buds and anything else. But women are so alienated from that, right? That it just doesn't even, that's not how we think about sex. We don't think of it most of the time as like, well, that's just a fun thing that feels good. So like, of course I would want to do that, right? 
Well, especially when we, and the, you know, the university college hookup culture is notorious for this. It's like, you're having sex for somebody else. Your pleasure obtained in that transaction, if measured by orgasmic competence, is about 6%. Right. And so sex really is for somebody else. Yeah. And I think we're, right, we're socialized that way from the beginning, right? It's a favor or it's something you trade for some kind of intimacy or commitment or just a thought about yourself. I want to think that society tells me that women are supposed to be sexy. I want to think that I'm sexy. So in order to do that, I'm going to have sex because somebody wants to have sex with me. Now I think I'm sexy. Like we're going through the whole thing so that we can have the thought, I'm desirable, I'm sexy, I'm wanted. Because that's what society teaches women. It's the reward for being the most desired and that it's not actually all that rewarding for the person. It's melted right. ice cream. It's like society teaches women that the most important thing is to be wanted, right? Like the most important thing you can be is wanted by someone else. And that is such a like alienating way of thinking about yourself. Totally. Let's talk about body image and being self-critical in relations to sex life and not sex life. But really, I think women's, they become an adult, they spend their whole life doing this, and then they die. And they didn't realize there was a different way to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I tell this story in the book about going to this, like before I found the kind of coaching that we teach where you actually change your thoughts, I worked with this coach who had me do, and body image was like the first thing I was working on because I had like, I had been on the sort of like diet roller coaster of constantly trying to lose weight, blah, 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 my whole life. And then eventually I, you know, one of the first areas I sort of wanted to work on in coaching was a different relationship with my body. So it was a body positive coach, but they gave me this exercise that was like, light candles and like sit in front of the mirror naked and tell myself I'm a you know beautiful goddess. And after about like three tries of this, I was just like, I don't think this is how we're going to get there. Guys, I don't think this is, this is not working. <laughs> it's nice that you tried it three times. <laughs> I said it, well, I only did it once. I said it, it three times. Oh, you well, I, yeah, I didn't do the whole thing three times. But we're sort of all on board now with the belief that body image is a problem and diet culture is a problem, but then the solutions that women are offered, I think are so out of, they're just like so aspirational and out of touch, right? And there's actually studies showing that if you try to practice an affirmation you don't believe, it makes you feel worse. Don't put the sticky on the mirror in the bathroom that you don't believe. Exactly. So I talk about, yeah, I mean, and this was one of the reasons that I'm so invested in teaching thought work in this very incremental way. In the book, I teach a tool called the thought ladder that like takes you from the thought you have now bit by bit to what you want to believe is because I worked on body image first. That was like the first big thing I worked on with thought work. And it was a slog, but in some ways that was a gift because it was like such an ingrained thought pattern that I really had to figure out man, how do you shift a thought that you have a hundred times a day that you've been having a hundred times a day for 25 years, right? Like has got possibly the most, the strongest, most wired together neural bundle in my brain. Like, how am I going to shift this? And it was really like, I call it the 10% less shitty thought. Is like, you're just trying to get a tiny bit better thought and practicing that thought. And so I think that the body image stuff, like it shows up in every area of women's lives, right? So many women are like, I'm not going to travel until I lose the weight. I'm not going to start dating until I lose weight. I'm not going to. I mean, I I, talk, I think I tell the story in the book as well. Like I put off becoming a coach because it was like when I was deep in diet brain, it was like, well, no one's going to listen to a fat life coach. I mean, if you're 
not thing. You obviously don't have your life together. And so nobody would possibly listen to you or believe you had anything valuable to say. That's how we're socialized. It's like if somebody's body is a certain size, then they know nothing about anything. They can't have anything to offer you. So I think it's such a like, we've made so much progress in some ways, but I think it just shifts, honestly. I mean, this is the problem. Like when when what we're really dealing with is a sexist society inside your head that's turning you against yourself, we can like reclaim larger body size. And now, now we're all fixating on skin and we're we're applying like 12 different skincare steps and like ruining our microbiomes and like making our skin much worse because we're all trying to get some like impossible, actually the look that everybody's going for is actually like what your face looks like when you've damaged your epidermis. Like, but it's just going to keep moving. You know, if you don't change your brain, it's going to be your body, it'll be your skin, then it'll be your hair, then it'll be your wrinkles, then it'll be this, it'll be that. Like, it's whack-a-mole. You have to change the thoughts about yourself that link your worth to how you look or you're just going to be jumping from thing to thing. Totally. For the people in the back who are like, you can't change your thoughts. How do you get them to start? <laughs> like, cause like I drink the juice, right? Like I'm like, desire is a thought, feeling, an action, blah, blah, blah. and you become, and this is how you are, like we become very facile with it, right? Like we can see it and blah, blah, blah. But like for so they truly they can't see that they're shackled because they're hanging on to this for them a very real thought that they'll be good enough when. Yeah. Well, I think we can pretty, I mean, I trained as a lawyer, so I just like to kind of logically break it down. Like, have you ever turned out to be wrong about something? Have you ever changed your opinion about something? Have you ever changed your opinion about someone? I mean, sex is a great one because people will come in and be like, well, we just don't have sex anymore. And I'm like, well, what did you think about your partner in the beginning? And they'll be like, oh, it was so hot, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what do you think about it now? And they're like, oh, it's just a chore. I'm like, okay, well, your thoughts changed (laughs) Right. But I use this example a lot of like when people say their thoughts can't change or it can't affect a desire. Every single one of us has experienced both, I think, starting out being attracted to someone and then not being attracted to them after they like opened their mouth or did a few things. Right. And vice versa, like attraction to somebody growing, most of us have experienced because we get to know them, we learn more about them, our thoughts about them change. Yes. At first I thought they were blah, 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 but now I understand blah, blah, blah. But now it's hot. Or I thought they were really hot and then they said a bunch of sexist things and I was like, ugh. If you can think of a time that your opinion has changed as an adult, then your thoughts can change, right? But most of us are just like, if our thoughts happen to change, okay, as opposed to taking charge of changing them. I love it. Mine is Ethan Hawke in the movie Reality Bites. (laughs) Because when I was in the 90s, that was hot. And now in my grown-up era, I'm like, dude, he smoked cigarettes. He was unemployed. He was a dick in that movie. (laughs) This reminds me of all the takes of On Love, Love Actually. It's like that movie seemed so romantic when it came out. And now everybody on the internet is like, so the prime minister is trying to sleep with his staff. (laughs) This other guy is trying to sleep with someone he can't even have a conversation with because they don't have a language in common. This guy is cheating on his wife. Why is this romantic? It's like our cultural narratives have changed. They change. Yeah, totally. Let's talk about women being uncomfortable receiving pleasure. Because you were talking about earlier, like, sweat gland's going to sweat. Clitoris is going to feel good. This is like an inherent part of our body. And like, women are like, and I hear it over and over and over again. They're like, I just cannot lay there and let him blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And like, it is like 
part of the game. Well, first of all, go back to our sex ed. Sex was a sex ed was a disease and pregnancy prevention plan. If you were freaking lucky, female genitalia, besides the parts that carried the baby, were not even taught. Right. So like we really weren't socialized into being like, and now it's your turn to just lay there and be in bliss. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. Like, number one, if you're in you know, if you're activated, basically, like if your nervous system is activated, you are not really able to relax and be present because your brain is like scanning for danger and thinking about everything you have to do and trying to, right, you're very sort of up in your thoughts. I also think a lot of socialization goes into it. Number one, women are socialized if they hear anything about their genitalia that it's sort of like kind of gross or does it smell weird or what does it look like? You know, there's sort of like it doesn't look right or it's got hair or like, so there's are socialized to basically like feel disgust about their own anatomy. So there's that. Women are also socialized that basically if they are ever receiving something from someone else, that makes them like a burden and they need to be very concerned about whether the other person wants to be doing it or minds doing it or like basically, you know, having any need is, especially like a physical one, is a burden. So we're very uncomfortable just receiving attention, basically, right? And especially with sex, when women are socialized to to be the person who's like delivering sexual pleasure to someone else. So it feels like so one-sided and they feel super uncomfortable and exposed. And I think the body image stuff comes into it too, which there's a lot of things, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of mixed thoughts and feelings about, about porn. But I will say one of the good things about porn is that if a man is attracted, if man or woman, if anybody is attracted to your body type, Given the internet, you can be sure they've seen it naked before, but women still have this like belief that when they take off their clothes, their the partner's gonna be like, oh, that's what it looks like? Like, no thanks, I'm out, right? Like this sort of fear of being fully seen because of our own self-judgment. So I think all these things combined, like how could you possibly relax and enjoy pleasure when all of that is going on? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, you know, just starting to see again, the aliens that we are of like, this is why it's so hard, people. We get it. This is hard for everybody. And once you start seeing it and kind of working with it, it gets a lot easier. Yeah, I think it's bit by bit. It's like if you can't stand to have your partner go down on you because you get so uncomfortable, the solution isn't to just like try to willpower your way through it. It's like to back off, start changing your thoughts, but like start with something smaller. Like, can you get a two-minute foot massage? Can you get kisses on the stomach, like can you, whatever, right? It's just to sort of like be working both on your thoughts and on your tolerance. I mean, I think part of the problem also is that people have the belief that sex should just happen and feel good and like be magical, right? That's what happens in the movies. That's what happens in the movies, right? And so if you have all this stuff in your brain and you don't enjoy, let's say it's uncomfortable for you to let your partner go down on you, and then you come to coaching or you try to work on it and then you like want it to be fixed immediately, and you want it to feel good. And you know what? The first couple of times you are going to feel uncomfortable and you are going to like feel good for a minute and then snap back to worrying about it and then feel good for a minute and then snap back to worrying about it, right? So like having realistic expectations about what it's like to try to change a habit like that. Also, women are socialized to not give honest feedback about how things feel sexually or what they want. So that, and that's part of that, like it's gender socialization. It's also that, Hollywood socialization or puritanical socialization, like don't talk about sex. If it's right, it should just happen naturally and be magical. And you shouldn't have to tell your partner. I mean, the amount of times I have coached a woman who says, I shouldn't have to tell my partner. And I'm like, before you even finish that sentence, the answer is no. (laughs) I mean, unless you're like telling them not to be abusive, then yes. But like, 
You shouldn't have to tell them not to be abusive. Anything else, I shouldn't have to tell them how I like them to go down on me. I shouldn't have to tell them what kind of birthday party I want. I shouldn't have to, like, no, you have to tell them everything because they're not psychic. And they're not you. And if you were with you, that probably would go poorly also. So we don't want to date ourselves. Communication. Like I see it all the time with sex stuff. Is like, you think it's a sex problem. It's a you communicating problem, <laughs> either with yourself of what you want or with your partner about right. what they want. And obviously like there are partners out there who won't be receptive, which sucks, but that's good information for you to have. Like, let's find out. Let's try to communicate. And if they really can't handle it, then you got to decide, do you want to be with somebody who cannot hear? Can you slow down with your tongue? Well, I've talked to some male sex therapists who are from the, they offer the male perspective just for, for what it's worth. And they're like, you need to tell us about 23,000 times, right? Because then you'll give me like, I told him, I told him once. Oh my God. Well, think about coaching. I'm like, whenever my clients say stuff like that, I'm like, how many times have I told you that your thoughts cause your feelings? How long, <laughs> how long have we been doing this? Has it totally sunk in yet? No. Like think about trying to teach a kid something. You can't tell a kid something once. And then, I mean, right. It doesn't work. That's not how memory works. I know. We're so harsh on ourselves. Probably another thing we're socialized. Like, if we are the hardest on ourselves, nobody else can hurt us more. Like, I, th I think there's a lot to, like, this self-critical abuse that we tolerate from ourselves more than we would tolerate from anybody else. Yeah, well, also women often think that they are being, like the amount of women who will tell me a bunch of self-critical thoughts and then tell me that they're not self-critical, they're just self-aware like we don't even recognize what is self-critical because society teaches women that their natural state is to be evaluated and judged by everyone around them. So then we do that to ourselves. And then we do that to our kids and our partners and everybody else, right? So nobody's having fun. So that, like, when you think that way, you automatically will feel like you're, I mean, because you you think about yourself that way, right? You are always feeling criticized and judged and your brain is constantly criticizing and judging you. And that is like how society teaches women to treat themselves. Yeah. Well, you know, it's worth hearing because some people are like, and then there will be the angels and the singing and your life will forever be better. And there's it's like- no angels and singing. There's no angels and singing, but like my time scarcity is better. My sex life is better. My judgment of me being a mom has completely non-existent anymore. Like you do the work and your life will change. And you'll be like, oh yeah, remember when I used to have all that time scarcity issues where I didn't think, and end to end. And for you, if you can share, like, are you on the other end of the body image or are you in a place where you're just, you've got other things that you're dealing with in life because th these thoughts aren't all consuming anymore? Yeah. I mean, I, of course you change. I think, you know, there studies show that humans um, overestimate what they can get done in a day, but underestimate what they can get done in a longer period of time, which we've all done. We've all made a to-do list for a day that was like clearly ridiculous. But we <laughs> underestimate how much we can get done and what can change over a longer period of time, right? Like a month, a year, a couple of years. And that happens with thought work and coaching all the time, right? It's like, well, I practiced the thought yesterday and I still have it today. And I'm like, it's been 12 Coaching's hours. bullshit. Yeah. Or like, it's not working. I need a new thought. I just coached somebody yesterday who was like, okay, well, I think I need the new, a new thought. And I was like, no, you need to practice that thought and like actually commit to it. So yeah, I mean, everything in my life is different. I have a totally different relationship with my body. It's not that my brain never spits out a self-critical thought, but my, I mean, first of all, it's like one one hundredth as frequent as it used to be. But also, I mean, I'm no longer like consumed with it day to day. But also, even when my brain does spit it out, my relationship to it is totally different. I mean, I left my career that I was 
didn't really love and wasn't happy in, but had a lot of invested just time and money and social prestige and, you know, all of that. I mean, I, you know, I quit running a think tank at Columbia Law School to become a life coach on the internet. It's like that took a lot of self-coaching. And my dating life, we haven't talked about anything. My dating life used to be like a total disaster. I'm now engaged to a a man who's actually like really a partner in all ways. Like, I'm in every area. Like I used to think I couldn't make money. I couldn't, you know, that money was just something somebody else decided if I could have or not. And I was bad with it and all of that. And now I, you know, run a multiple seven-figure business. I have 12 employees that I that the business supports. I'm trying, there's like every every area of my life is different because of thought work. I mean, your life can change so much more than you think. And I always say, like, there's no exit ramp off the human experience. You're still gonna have a mix of positive and negative emotions. You're still going to just be a human. So the sooner you let go of the fantasy that like you can quote unquote improve yourself to a point where you never have to feel sad or lonely or be irritated or snap at your kids or whatever, the better your life becomes the faster. I love it. Thank you so much. Everybody, Take Back Your Brain is now available for pre-order. Go get it. There's bonuses if you do it now. Take Back Your Brain, how a sexist society gets in your head and how to get it out. You can order the book and get all the bonuses at takebackyourbrainbook.com. We've got like a guided journal, some audios on people-pleasing and anxiety, a panel all about thought work and relationships, so many good bonuses, all available through that site, takebackyourbrainbook.com. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of You Are Not Broken. If you want to dig deeper with me, sign up for my adult sex education masterclass where you learn adult things like communication skills, anatomy lessons, and desire types, and how to talk to your doctor about sexual health concerns. If you want the adult sex education masterclass for free, join my monthly membership for more in-depth, exclusive content, more time with yours truly, a private podcast, coaching, and educational empowerment. And you can watch my interviews live and get them immediately without advertising. Head over to www.kellycaspersonmd.com for the membership and adult sex ed masterclass. Members get the masterclass for free. This podcast is presented solely for educational, entertainment, and informational purposes only. I am a doctor, but not your doctor in this format. And all of my platforms and guests, including on this podcast, are not giving individual medical advice or practicing medicine. See and consult with your own care team for your individual needs and concerns. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for the care and advice of a physician, therapist, or other qualified professional. This podcast does not constitute the practice of medicine, in case you were curious about that, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. But I still love you. Using the information on this podcast or any of my platforms is at your own risk. Until next time, remember, you are not broken.